Today's Bible reading is Ruth chapter 4, reading the whole of chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. can be found on page 412 of the Black Bibles on your seats, or you can follow on the screen behind me. It's Ruth chapter 4, reading the whole chapter 1 to 22. Meanwhile, Boaz went down to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders from the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought that I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one partner or one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife. In order to maintain the name of the dead, with the property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who built up family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath and famous in Bethlehem. Through the offering the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like of Perez, who Tamar born to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman, women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Unimadab, 
Amirdat, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Thanks, Simon. And thank you so much for uh, having me back. It's always lovely to speak at a church. That's a lovely invitation, but it's very reassuring to be asked to speak a second time. Sometimes you never get the return invitation. It's been great at looking at the book of Ruth, and it's, it's a wonderful little book in the Old Testament for a number of reasons. Uh, I love it partly because it's so small and you can wrap your head around the whole thing in a relatively short period of time, unlike some of those very big Old Testament books. But it's also great because it, it, it both captures in many ways the story of God and how he works in his world in microcosm. So many of the great themes and, and principles and, and ideas of, of God's interaction with his people is in this book. But it's not abstracted from the whole story. It's actually, as we've just seen in the reading, very much in the flow of the Old Testament narrative that, as we'll see, ultimately directs us towards Jesus. It's a beautiful book uh, with all these facets in it. Uh, You remember how we started out in chapter 1? We had this family, the family of Elimelech, who left the land when the famine came. They walked out on God. When the going gets tough, Elimelech jumps ship. Uh, And not only that, when they left, they went to Moab, which was uh, a land that was one of the, the great enemies of the people of Israel, The sons intermarried with Moabite wives, uh, which was not to be done, very explicitly not to be done. Then Elimelech and uh, his sons died, leaving uh, ultimately Naomi and the two daughters-in-law. One went back to her family, but Ruth stayed with her. Despite the fact that there was going to be nothing in it for her, Ruth stayed with her. They returned at the end of chapter 1, and uh, in chapter 2, you see that Ruth ends up Uh, finding a way of sustaining the family by uh, gleaning in the fields, this this subsistence living, just scratching out from the leftover cuttings as the harvesters go through, and and there being enough to feed the two of them, although it it ends up being much more than that, because the owner of the field, a man named Boaz, actually heaps upon her so much more of the produce of the land that they not only have enough for their daily bread, they have an abundance. And then in chapter 3, Naomi hatches a plot. Well, Ruth, you could let Boaz know that you're single. And perhaps, imagine if you were to marry him. Uh, That would be incredible because that would get some security for the family long term. That is, Ruth would be folded into the household of this significant man in the land of Israel. Uh, And more than that, we found out he happens to be a, a relative. And what's called in uh, the book of Ruth, a guardian redeemer. Now that's, a, that's an idea we don't find in the Old Testament directly, but it's a development on something we do see in the book of Deuteronomy. Back in Deuteronomy, there's this idea of what we call a, a Leverite marriage. That is, if a brother dies, a man dies, his brother is required to take on his wife as his own Uh, in order that he might have children and the children might bear the name of the first husband. This is because it's very important to maintain the family line, the family name. 
But when you get to the book of uh, Ruth, there's a development here which is not just about a man and his brother, but about the greater family. And, and the extended family might not be required to enter into this contract, but have the option to, should they choose to. And what we find is Boaz says, well, I, had, I, I would like to do that. I will enter into this marriage with Ruth, but there's a problem. The problem is there's another guy. Like all good romances, there's another guy. And because of the uh, family relationships and dynamics, uh, this other guy is actually ahead of the queue, as it were. And if he had wanted to marry Ruth and take her on, it would have been his prerogative over Boaz's. So chapter 3 ends with Boaz saying, I will check this out. And if he wants to marry you, I will step back, and that can be how it goes. But if he doesn't, I will. And so we left chapter 3 hanging. How's it going to end? And we open chapter 4. At the town gates where Boaz is looking to resolve the matter of who will take Ruth to be their wife. Well, if you look at chapter 4, in verses 1 to 4, we find it's a town gate meeting. Uh, in the ancient world, the town gate was a place where official business was contracted because it's a very public place. It's a thoroughfare. It's where people go in and out. It's, it's a very uh, open place for the conduct of business like this. And sure enough, uh, Boaz is... There in the town gate, and verse 1, the guardian redeemer did indeed come along, this closer guy who remains unnamed, a bit of a mystery man. And Boaz calls him over to sit down, so he does, and Boaz calls also the elders of the town, and they have a conversation. But the conversation is not about Ruth, the conversation is actually about the land holding that Elimelech had, and the fact that Naomi... Elimelech's uh, wife is now looking to sell it and Boaz lets this man know that the piece of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech is is up for sale I thought I'd bring it to your attention and ask if you want to buy it because if you don't I will and the man's first response is well that seems pretty good maybe I, I will buy it and this might give me a good uh, be a good investment you know I can grow more crops harvest more have more to sell uh, that would seem to be a smart thing to do Then you get to verses 5 and 6, and Boaz just completes explaining what's involved here. Maybe you call it the fine print, I'm not sure. But he says, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. That is, the way it works is this land holding that was Elimelech's, the family are attached to the land. There's a strong connection between the people and the property. And it's not just that this, uh, this uh, close guardian, this guardian redeemer, would pick up the land. He'd also have to sustain those who were connected to the land. Now, he might have thought, oh, well, I can, I can support Naomi. She's a, an elderly or well, getting older widow, and, and I can manage to do that. But then Boaz says, oh, don't forget she has Ruth. And Ruth is still actually of marriageable age. And by our laws, if you take her on, part of what you'll need to do is enter into that, that, that Leverite-type marriage and raise up through her children for that family who can carry their name on. 
Now, when the guardian redeemer hears this, verse 6, uh, he says he can't do it because it might endanger his own estate. That is, he realizes the implications. Now, if I do this, well, actually, the land is not going to return for my family the way that I had thought it would. And suddenly, the deal doesn't make as much sense to me anymore. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. At this point, uh, the transaction is completed. And uh, you see in verse 7 here, uh, just a kind of strange custom. But so it is. In early times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal, gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Weird, hey? You can imagine lots of people walking around holding sandals because they've just done a deal. Um, but nonetheless, that's the way it worked. And I take it it's something to do with how public and, and personal it is. Uh, that is, it's almost like having a, a seal from a person. Uh, that is, you don't get this without a close contact being made and it being handed over. Interestingly, though, it's also a development on what we see back in Deuteronomy about the Leverite marriage. Let's have a quick look there at Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. Um, I can read that for you. This is the, the law by which uh, the people of Israel lived. And it says in verse 5, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. That's what we've been talking about, the Leverite marriage. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate, similar setting, and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town gate shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face and say, this is what is done to a man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Oh, imagine that. So it's slightly different. It's talking about the brother relationship, but you can see clearly what is going on in Deuteronomy 25 uh, is the background for what's happening here. Uh, and, and it's uh, extended to not just the brother, but the wider family. It's no longer obligatory that uh, the next of kin marry the widow, but it's optional. And the holding of the sandal still is in some ways a symbol that this transaction has been completed or that business has been done around this issue and so it is at the get to verse 9 and we see it's all uh, completed as it ought to have been and verses 9 to 11 it, it's very clear this is a public witness Boaz announced to the elders and the people today you are witnesses that I've bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, Marlon I've acquired Ruth uh, and so on and so on and the elders in verse 11 say we are witnesses it's a very public open uh, process with enormous integrity around it I kind of joked before when we got to verse 5 that you know was Boaz now revealing the fine print is Boaz being a bit shifty here and saying aha uh, it's a bait and switch you know I'm offering you land but actually here's what's really going on uh, that, that's kind of a way you might read it, but that's clearly not what's going on. 
what, what we see here and what uh, the passage is at pains to show us is just how above board and full of integrity everything is that Boaz is doing. You know, verse 1, he goes up to the town gate, the place of business. Now, verse 2, he calls the elders over uh, so that there are witnesses here. Um, verse 4, he says he wants to bring the matter to their attention and, and do it in the presence of the elders. Verse 9, today you are witnesses. Uh, verse 10, uh, he, he, he continues to say, you are witnesses. Verse 11, we are witnesses. It's just, it's full of, this is the right process. It's completely clean, full of integrity, public. There can be no one who would scrutinize this and say anything dodgy or inappropriate has happened. And I just think, as a, as a quick sidebar, I mean, it's not um, directly connected to this story, but it is a great example of the ethics of the people of God. And it is exactly the way that Christians, followers of Jesus, should operate in all times, in all circumstances. We need to be beyond reproach. We need to never be people who do backdoor deals, sneaky transactions, Everything that we do should be open and, and with the greatest level of transparency and integrity. Our, our budgeting in churches, the way we deal with the government authorities, our personal lives, the way we conduct our relationships. We don't believe in creative accounting. We don't believe in don't ask, don't tell ethics. We don't believe in controlling the flow of information to advantage us and disadvantage others. We don't believe in spinning the truth in such a way that it sounds good uh, to the people who are hearing it, even if we haven't quite given them an even-handed account of what's going on. I mean, in some ways, this is, it is a sidebar, because I hope it's just screamingly obvious, despite the fact that it's true that God's people, Israel and Christians have failed again and again to, to be full of uh, the moral uprightness that they should have, it is nonetheless the call on us. And I just want to say that, that that really should go without saying for God's people. Of course, on the last day, everything will be exposed. Everyone will have all that they have done brought to account. Nothing will be secret, nothing will be hidden. We're not hiding anything from God now anyway. Uh, so it's foolish to think that we would get away with behaviour that's any less than completely above board and honourable in every regard. Returning to the story. Well, it's exciting. We got to the end of chapter 3 and we thought, oh no, Boaz and Ruth, we were kind of hoping they'd get together and now there's this guy in the way. How's it going to end up? Well, this guy said, no, I'm out of the frame, Boaz. She's all yours. And Boaz publicly accepts that he is going to now marry Ruth and we've come really to the climax of the story and what we've been hoping for and what I guess we kind of thought might happen from the beginning. But then it's interesting the way that the elders praise this relationship and the blessings that they pour upon it. It seems to be when you read verses 11 and 12 that they're wishing them the very best you know uh, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah who together built up the family of Israel may you have a standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem 
Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. It sounds like we wish you all the very best and, and the greatness for your wonderful family. And it is that at one level, but when you stop for a moment and actually look at the names that are being called out here as comparisons, you just think for a minute, hang on a sec, what is going on there? You see, Rachel and Leah and Perez and Tamar, they're couples who have a pretty uh, unsavoury story. You see, it sounds like the first call is just full of praise for this wonderful couple. But the comparison is not with wonderful couples. It's with messy couples. And you kind of wonder if this is what you'd want. You know, when you get married, you kind of want people to say, I I should be talking really about um, uh, Harry and Meghan who got married last night, apparently. I didn't watch it, but the news tells me it all went ahead. That's the kind of wedding you want. we don't, I don't really know enough about Megan. She's new on the scene. But I'll tell you who we do know is his brother, William and Kate. That's the fairy tale, right? The fairy tale marriage. When you walk down the aisle, when you're getting married, you want people to say, may you be like Wills and Kate. You think, yeah, that's lovely. Imagine if you walked down the aisle and someone said, may you be like Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys. Do you know, do you know who they are? I, I, I don't really, but I had to look this up on the internet. Kim Kardashian is a celebrity who I understand is famous for not much else than being a celebrity and once because a sex tape that she had produced leaked on the internet. Uh, It was a sex tape that was made with her boyfriend while she was waiting the finalisation of her first divorce, by the way. Uh, Chris Humphreys is a US basketball player and in 2011, Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys Uh, got married to a mass US celebrity wedding hype. 72 days later, Kim Kardashian filed for divorce. So imagine that. You walk down the aisle or you announce your engagement and people go, may you be like Chris Humphreys and Kim Kardashian. You'd think, that's not very nice. That's a horrible thing to say. But saying may... May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah is, is kind of, in some ways, picking up on some things that you don't really want said about your bride or about you if you are the bride. See, Rachel and Leah were the two wives of Jacob. We had in Genesis Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob. And in Genesis chapter 29 and 30, you find out that Rachel and Leah, along with their maidservants, these four women together were the mothers of Jacob's children, uh, the 12 sons who became the heads of the tribes of Israel. But it was a bitter, bitter time. There was great rivalry between Rachel and Leah. They sent their maidservants in to get more sons, to get one up on each other. And the sons' names, we know them as the tribes of Israel, you know, Reuben, Levi, Gad, Asher. When you look at what those names mean in Hebrew, they're names like, see, a son. I got one, you didn't. Ha! Names like, God's vindicated me. God likes me better than you. The the names of the sons of Israel reflect the feud between Rachel and Leah, the poison and the bitterness between them. Uh, So to say, may this woman be to you like Rachel and Leah, you think, oh, great, 
a woman of feuding and bitterness and one-upmanship and vindictiveness, yeah, thanks so much for that. What about, even worse, Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah? Do you know this story? Judah was the fourth child of Leah. Tamar was Judah's widowed daughter-in-law. So the son of Tamar married, uh, sorry, the son of Judah married Tamar. He died, and so we have Judah and his widowed daughter-in-law. You can read all about this in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar covered her face so she couldn't be seen, tricked Judah into thinking she was a prostitute. So he slept with her. He then found out later on, your daughter-in-law, by the way, has been prostituting herself and now is pregnant. And he says, that's atrocious. I want to see her burnt. At which point she comes out and says, well, it was with you. And they have twin boys, Perez and Zara. You're getting married. Congratulations. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. May your family be like that of a man who slept with his daughter-in-law only because he thought she was a prostitute and then asked for her to be killed. Why would you say this? Why would you say these things as Boaz and Ruth announced that they were going to be married? Why would these people be models? You may as well have said Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys. They wouldn't have got the reference, but it was the same sort of thing. Well, here's the answer, and I think it's, it's actually quite a beautiful answer. The answer is because the people who are blessing Boaz and Ruth on the way to their marriage were people who knew well that the God of Israel is a God who works through the great mess of human lives and relationships to bring blessing and restoration. That's the kind of God we have. A God who works through mess and sin and the most atrocious of circumstances to bring about his good purposes despite all of that. And in many ways, this is the circumstances of Ruth and Naomi, isn't it? Remember, Elimelech walked out on God. Marlon and Killian married Moabite women. They weren't meant to do that. Came back only because the land was prosperous. Complained against God. Oh, it's all God's fault. I'm bitter because of what he's done. And out of the mess, the mess of this family and their stupidity and their selfishness, their failure to follow God, their blaming God, out of that mess... God brings an incredible union that leads to his purposes being fulfilled. So the people calling out, may it be like Rachel and Leah, may it be like Perez who Tamar bore to Judah, they're saying, may it be just as God in the past has brought great blessing out of horrible mess, may it be the same. We've seen the mess and now we see the goodness that our God is giving It's interesting because Ruth really has come from as far away from God as it is possible to be. She was a foreigner. Not only a foreigner, but a Moabite. Now, in the New Testament, one of the big things that's turned around since the time of Jesus is 
all racial and geopolitical differences between people have been removed. There is now no longer Jew or Gentile. That's a very clear teaching of the New Testament. But it's a development on the Old Testament where ethnic and geopolitical differences mattered. It's an Old Testament idea, but this is the world we're in, in the book of Ruth. And Ruth was on the outer. She was a Moabite. She was a widow. She was attached to people who had apostatized from Israel. You could not be lower on the list of people who you thought might deserve or merit God's favour. And where does she end up? She ends up married to Boaz. And note this, she doesn't just end up being allowed into the land and allowed to pick up bits of grain from around the edge of the field. She's not just a tolerated outsider. She becomes a celebrated bride at the centre of a significant family. And again, that's the way God works. God is calling people who are as far away as you could imagine, as far away as they could imagine, not just to be tolerated by him, not just to say, well, if you're good enough, you can come this far, but to join right into the family at the center of his people and be in the core, in the middle, in in the closest place of all, a celebrated position. I have to say, this was very hard for me to understand becoming a Christian. See, uh, I wasn't a follower of Jesus in my young years. And when I heard from all the way over here in my mess and sin and stupid rebellion that I lived uh, in my early teen years, uh, when I heard that God would have me back, I was really needy of that and really excited about it. But for a long time, I thought what that meant was, God will let you in just and tolerate you on the fringes if you keep your nose clean. You will, you will be okay, but, but don't get any kind of delusions of grandeur. You are really only just going to scrape in because, you know, God's nice even letting you come that far. It took me a long time to realise that's not what God did for me. God took me from all the way over there and he said, come and sit at the table. Be my beloved son. Join the family you're one of us now. You belong right here, close to my heart, face to face. I don't just tolerate you. I love you and I want you with me always. That's the kind of God we have. Incredible. That's the message that the church has for the world. Not that you scrape in, but that you join the family. You sit at the table, you belong with God's people, you belong with God himself. So it's a remarkable move for Ruth. And it's a blessing beyond anything we could even suggest she deserves. It's a blessing beyond measure for her to join this family. And then as we read in the close of the story, not only does she marry Boaz, but uh, with him becomes parent to a son. Uh, We see in verses 13 and onwards, Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife when he made love to her, The the Lord enabled her to conceive, she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, 
Praise the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Naomi took the child in her arms and carried him, and, sorry, cared for him. The, the women living there said, Naomi has a son. Uh, interesting that Naomi too is writing this blessing. Naomi, who had walked out with Elimelech, also uh, is returned to the family by virtue of her daughter being married to Boaz. And this son will carry on the name of her husband Elimelech, despite his sinfulness, despite his rebellion. And she can look at him and see that her family will have a heritage into the future. But then even more than that, it turns out this is not just a son like any other. This son is Obed. Who's Obed? Well, we're told very straightforwardly. Obed, in verse 17, is the father of Jesse, who we read about in the book of, uh, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel as the father of King David, the great king of Israel. If you, if you like, the greatest king of Israel before the coming of the Lord Jesus. You see, Ruth and Naomi have not just gotten security, which was the goal in chapter 3. Ruth and Naomi have been folded into Israel's royal line because God is not just working in the lives of individuals, God is unfolding his salvation history through them. This is not just the story of one family. This is the story of what God is doing in the world for his glory and for the salvation of many people. The genealogy uh, that we see in verses 18 through to 22 then traces the line of Perez, whose dubious uh, origins we've just heard of from Genesis 38, uh, right through to King David. But in some ways, this is just the start of a genealogy. It's just the beginning of a longer genealogy. And what I want to do, to you, do for you now is uh, read something that uh, no one likes to hear and one of those bits of uh, the Bible that we think, oh my goodness, why do they bother putting that in there? But I think on the back of the story of Ruth suddenly has a whole lot more excitement in it. I want to read to you Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 21. The genealogy of Jesus. Here's what Matthew writes at the beginning of his gospel telling the story of Jesus. Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. But then Matthew keeps going. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. 
Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus... There were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Uh, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because, because Joseph, her, fa- her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The genealogy that is begun at the end of Ruth is completed at the beginning of Matthew. And did you notice some things in that genealogy as we raced through it? Judah and Perez were there. Not particularly savoury people to have in a great genealogy. Boaz's mother was Rahab. Is this the prostitute that we find in the book of Joshua, chapters 2 and chapter 6? King David's adultery with Bathsheba is recalled. Manasseh is named one of the worst kings of the people of Israel. What you really get as you read through this genealogy is, my goodness, this is a family of sinners. This is a family of horrendous sinners with mess from start to stop. And it results in one called Jesus who will save his people from their sins. Jesus was not born into a pure family. He was born into a messy family. A family sin-soaked from top to bottom. And he was born to save his people from their sins. You see, the book of Ruth ultimately unambiguously points us towards Jesus. It's Jesus who restores and saves sinners. It's Jesus who restores and saves people who are messed up by sin. It's because of Jesus that people like us can actually have any hope of moving from the mess of sin to the glory of eternity with him. Ruth, an outsider, attached to a sinner, brought into the family. That family peppered throughout its history with sin. But it all pointed towards the one whose role was to die for sin, to take the penalty for sin, whose blood washes people clean from sin, 
And it wasn't just those who went before, it's those who came after and who bear the family name. And the family name is Christian, follower of Christ, brother or sister of Christ. He saves his family, his people from their sins if they belong to him. And that's the good news for us as well as for Naomi and Ruth and their family. And it's also the good news for the people beyond us. It's the good news for our families who don't yet know Jesus. It's the good news for our workmates who don't yet know Jesus. It's a good news for anyone we might know at the school gate who doesn't yet know Jesus. It's good news for our neighbours who don't yet know Jesus. That they can be saved from their sins and from the mess of their life and not just tolerated by God but brought right to his table as his precious children and have a place secured there forever by the one who's done that once and for all, Jesus, the King, the descendant of David. Jesus is the hope of the book of Ruth, our hope and the hope of the world. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your work of not just tolerating sinners, but welcoming them right in to the heart of your family through Jesus, who saves his people from their sins, who saves all those who went before him in his messed up family, who saved all those who come after him and bear the family name willingly. And we thank you so much, those of us who know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, that he saves us from our sins. And we thank you so much that his name is a name for all who turn in repentance and faith. And we pray that anyone we know, anyone even here who is still considering who Jesus is and what he's done, would hear the good news of his gospel and join the family by your Spirit's work in their heart. We pray you'd make us great agents of this good news. And we look forward to seeing the family grow to the glory of its King. And we pray in his name. Amen. I've got a number of questions that have come through on the SMS line, but I'm also aware that our kids are out in the programs with their kids' workers and we'll probably go a little bit over time for them this morning. Uh, so I've just got a couple of questions to ask Tim this morning. If you didn't get your question answered, maybe catch Tim over a cup of coffee afterwards. Uh, so Tim, the first question is, uh, kind of. it seems like uh, the story is about... Ruth providing an heir for Naomi so that Elimelech's name can continue. Mm -hmm. And yet in the genealogy at the end of Ruth and in Matthew, Elimelech's name doesn't get mentioned, but it's Boaz who gets mentioned. Do you want to comment on why that might be? Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Um, uh, certainly at the end of Ruth, you see that it's um, the whole thing in verse 16 and 17. Naomi has a son. And so there's a very clear sense that even though it's Boaz and Ruth's son, uh, it's the family of Elimelech who have a son. So even though his name's not recorded, Elimelech's name's not recorded in the genealogy there, um, it's very clear that, at least the people around him at the time, uh, Obed was considered, in, in some ways, the child of Elimelech, because he's Naomi's son. Now, that's not, not biologically the case, but that's 
clearly what's being said in verse 17. And I take it that uh, part of the way it works is Boaz could have married anyone. You know, he could have married, I don't know, Megan, for example, if there was such a person around at the time. Uh, But no, what's happened is the family of Elimelech have been joined to the family of Boaz. So instead of the genealogy of um, Boaz going down this way, the genealogy of Boaz gets to him and then Elimelech's family is brought into it via Ruth, whose name is mentioned in the genealogy, and down there. So it it may be that for people, uh, Old Testament people who know uh, this story, that when they read Ruth, part of them is going, Ruth of the family of Elimelech. Now it's not explicit, but I think that's what's uh, that's implicit, and I think at least we see that at the end of chapter 4, where people say, Naomi has a son. Like, for them, that connection had been made. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, one more question. Uh, can you comment on how the instructions on leverant marriage from Deuteronomy appear to reinforce the notion of wives as property of husbands? How can we hopefully talk about the relationship between the culture of our time mm. and the law given to the people of Israel? Yep. Uh, I'm not sure I'd use the language of property there to talk about what's going on. Um, I think what you see in both the Leveret marriage in the, um, the law of Israel and in the book of Ruth is responsibility. I think that's the big word that hangs over the top of it, is it's responsibility. And from the book of Ruth, chapter 3 as well, it's security. So women in the ancient world were not as... Uh, didn't hold property the way men did, didn't have the same legal status as men in, in those regards. And that's been true in our culture even up to recent times. You know, ridiculous things like women not always being able to vote uh, until the last century. I mean, that kind of stuff has been um, true, that in law, in lots of cultures for a long time, women haven't had the same standing as men. And so what's being said, I think, in the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible and in Ruth is, given that... We have an obligation and a responsibility to provide security for women who are in situations that are hard. So I think the Leverite marriage is not about now I own her. I think the Leverite marriage is now I have to take the responsibility of providing her security. So I think that's a a better way, a a more correct way of looking at it. Um, And that's the language that's used. Security, um, taking care of rather than owning Very good. Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks so much for being with us. We really appreciate uh, your time and uh, your great teaching for us.